0: I'm Jason Perkins of Allagash Brewing, and this is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer. My guest today is uh, Andrea Stanley from Valley Malt, and she is here for a conversation that goes beyond the malt house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. But first, please visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media at All About Beer. To support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We'll get more into the conversation in just a moment, but first, this message.
1: First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot
2: slash blog. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts.
1: Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com.
0: All right. Uh, well, let's get into it. Uh, while this podcast is named Brewer to Brewer, today, today we're shaking it up a little bit. And so it's more of a Brewer to malt House, our malt stir podcast. And so, yeah, a little bit about my guest today. Um, Andrea Stanley is the co-owner of Valley Malt, a craft malt house in Western Mass, supplying craft brewers, distillers, and bakers with locally grown malts and grain. Andrea was an avid supporter of local food and in 2009 saw an opportunity to connect the emerging local grain economy with the craft brewing community. In October of 2010, Andrea and her husband Christian shoveled their first one ton batch of locally grown malt. Since then, she has been a pioneer and an amazing advocate for the grain community in the Northeast. In 2022, Valley Malt underwent a major expansion Adding 1 million pounds of grain cleanings and storage to the capacity, to bring the capacity to malt 1.5 million pounds annually. Valley Mountain now supports over 700 acres of grain annually in New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Maine, and Connecticut, with a plan to keep growing in the coming years by installing additional germination bins. Prior to becoming a maltster, Andrea worked in vocational rehabilitation for 15 years. She earned a BA in education and psychology and a master's in rehabilitation her career in the social services provided her a skill set that has served the craft beer community in ways that go way beyond making malt in 2013 she was a founding member of the craft malt guild and served as their first board chair from 2017 to 2021 she served on the ba diversity committee in 2019 she helped create the northeast grain shed alliance where she currently serves on the steering committee she lives in Hadley with her partner, Christian, and their three teenagers and enjoys the, researching the history of barley malting and brewing whenever she can. It's an honor to introduce you, Andrea. How are you doing today?
3: I'm doing well, Jason. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great.
0: Yeah. yeah. You know, when when I got asked to uh, choose somebody for this podcast, I, I kind of tried to take a step back and think about people who have had a big influence on craft beer in general and beyond just breweries alone, because, you know, we all we're all partners in this, this great thing of, of craft beer and, and craft, um, craft malting, et cetera. So, and I try to think of people who are really kind of true pioneers and, and not to embarrass you, but I mean, I think you're truly a, cra- a pioneer in craft malting. You know, I mean, people talk about in the craft beer world, people like Ken Grossman and Fritz Maytag and those are the true pioneers of early days of craft brewing in the US. And I think you are, you are in that list of people in the early days of craft malting, for sure. And so uh, I thought it would be fun to talk about that side of the business. I mean, um, you know, as you know, Alagash is pretty passionate about supporting the local agricultural economy as well. And so, yeah, thought it would be a good way, a good way to start. I was remembering; I'm pretty sure I met you for the first time. I don't know if you remember this at a at one of those small hop growers gatherings in Vermont. That was maybe 2009. Oh, no.
2: maybe?
3: Yeah, I I totally remember walking from where the meeting was being held, which was at the Stowe Resort. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. it was the v- Van Trapp Resort. Yeah, And they had just a little brewery there at the time. And we were walking over from where the more formal meeting was happening to the brewery. And I think we uh, crossed paths and said, oh yeah, we're thinking of starting a malt house. And at the time, the hop conference that UVM and Heather Darby were putting on was one of the first ways to start kind of intersecting with brewers that were there that were obviously interested in local ingredients and trying to make that a reality. And those were really the early days (laughs) for both the hops and the malt.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, meeting the two of you and and hearing what you're working on and and being pretty Having kind of my mind blown a little bit because it just wasn't just wasn't happening at the time, like you said. So Um, but yeah, let's let's talk about the beginnings. I mean, starting a new business is of any kind is quite an endeavor. Starting one that requires large capital investment like malting or brewing is another being one of the first people to do it uh, in a new industry is also something else. And oh, you're also were raising a family at the time, I believe so. I guess uh, to put it bluntly, what the hell were you thinking getting into this business?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I guess I was thinking I wanted to make an impact in the world. Um, You know, being somebody that thinks that our food system has to be rethought about and maybe decentralized a little bit from large industrial um, manufacturing. And trying to bring things back to a smaller scale, both because um, it makes our food system more exciting, um, I would argue makes aspects of it maybe a little bit more secure, even. Um, but it also, as you've seen happen in Maine, it supports a um, better uh, economy, You know, a more local economy, not just for um you know, one side of the supply chain, but if that entire supply chain is happening at a local level, it raises up a lot of boats in the community. Um, it, it raises up the tide in the entire community. So uh, that was a huge motivating factor. Um, and even just probably a little bit, uh, the, the newness of it and the fact that it hadn't been done and maybe trying to prove prove a point and prove that it could be done, Uh, was a a big motivating factor. Um, So I guess maybe you could call that a little ego (laughs) (laughs) wanting to wanting to say, Oh yeah, no, there's, there must be a reason why nobody has a small malt house in Massachusetts, but I'm going to ignore all those reasons and try to do it despite all of that. Um, But I think Christian and I, we, we did it in a way so that our size in the beginning wasn't an enormous capital investment you know we started our first malt system was in a small garage in a neighbor's uh garage and uh we did invest what was our retirement savings at the time but you know it wasn't that big of a investment and um christian being a mechanical engineer was able to you know we we were able to kind of see some savings on building malting equipment just based on his skill set so Um, but yeah, I mean, it was kind of crazy. Like my youngest of three was, um, five months old when we were at that hop conference with you. So, you know, I literally had given birth and then, you know, four months later we were writing a business plan for Valley Mall. Um, but it just, it was something, I mean, I remember at the time and I still feel it pretty, pretty much in my blood at this point. It's just like, I feel like I got bit by like the malt bug and uh, and it's just in my blood now, you know, it's like one of those weird things where you have this awakening and you kind of can't turn away from it. Um, And that's really how it feels. It kind of comes down to that real gut feeling like this is what I was meant to do or really want to do. And um, and the early days are really exciting. I'm sure you feel that, too. Right. There's there's a certain excitement, there's a certain uh, serotonin punch to, uh, to being feeling like you're part of part of the early days of something exciting and good, and hopeful and all of those kinds of things. So
0: yeah, totally. And and (laughs) what did you or Christian have? Were you uh, gardeners? Or did you have any, was there anything in your in your earlier years that kind of led you towards world of small grains and malting.
3: Yeah. So I grew up in a family where my parents were hippies and we had a huge like half acre garden growing up. So pretty good sized garden. We did a lot of our own canning and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I, I definitely had an awareness and have always pretty much had a garden my entire life. Um, And also growing up, we used to go visit every um, October, we would go visit my mother's father's farm in outside of quebec and um we would stay there for at least a weekend every year and get to see what it was like it was a dairy farm at the time um and so farming was a little bit in our blood and i would hear my pepe talk a lot about how he didn't want to be a farmer because it was such hard work um but it's interesting because now in my generation both my brother and uh my cousin and myself are all involved some way in farming and agriculture so um it's it's kind of interesting how that all these influences you know growing up being a kid and going to visit a farm and playing in hay lofts and driving around on farming equipment, like it, it all does have. I think it all did have an impact on how much I respected um, that part of life. You know, that food has to come from somewhere. Somebody has to care about how that food gets to your family's table every night. Um, and, you know, it's it, it shouldn't just be this mysterious thing that we have no idea how it arrives. I think it's our... Um, it's our duty in a way to care about how that, how that food and beverage, you know, arrive on your family's table every night. Um, and to make sure that we're at least for myself, wanting to support more sustainable ways to do that.
0: 100%. I couldn't, I couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. What what was it like in the early days when you were actually, once you started malting uh, on those first year, year or two? like in terms of getting customers, right? Brewers, like, was there, was there a lot of interest in what you were working on in those early years? or did it take a little bit of sales, sales work on your part to kind of raise people's <laughs> awareness that you can, instead of buying your grain from the Midwest or Europe, like you can get it right here.
3: Yeah, I think there's a little bit of both. And I think even some of those. Um, so like, I think because craft beer is such a unique industry and in that, People that start craft breweries tend to come from a whole lot of different backgrounds. Um, Some people, um, I think, completely understood what it was that we were trying to do and completely understood that overnight we were not going to be supplying them with malt that was equivalent to what what their current supply chain was able to supply them or at the price of that current supply chain. So that was great because those were our early customers. I always call them like our anchors, you know, like we could rely on these breweries and these distilleries to be there for us. And, and then there was resistance. Absolutely. You know, because there were brewers that had been trained in a way that you know, they very much knew a lot about malt and really respected the, um, you know, what a maltster does to make them be able to brew their beer. And I think that rightfully so, um, there was probably some resistance there to, you know, somebody that, you know, you read my bio, you know, that was kind of doing case management in a, in social yeah. work. And then, you know, now I'm starting a malt house and, and so, you know, what qualifies me to sort of supply them with malts. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think that one of the things, I, you know, I, I always took that kind of feedback, I guess, to as a challenge to just try to really make the best malt that we could from the grains that we had. Um And also just try to educate, you know, I mean, educating people about what we were trying to do. Um, and luckily, we had a lot of support from organizations like, you know, UVM and Cornell, so that within a couple of years, we had some um, kind of verifiable authorities in the world of, at least of agriculture and grains kind of working with us. Um, and then of course, once some of these anchor breweries that we were working with started to make beer with our malt, and those beers were good, um, we were able to just start kind of sharing their experiences and, and that sort of thing. But Luckily, we started off really small. Like, I think that, you know, that one ton a week size batch for us was really a great playground to try to experiment with all different things. You know, I remember back then people were asking us to malt einkorn and emmer and, you know, all of these different kinds of grains. And so we were down for it. You know, we were down for pretty much trying to malt anything. Um, and learn everything, you know? It was just a flood of knowledge for years and years of just trying to learn how to properly malt. Um, and then once we were, once Hartwick College put together the Craft Center for Food and Beverage and was able to start providing us with malt analysis, that was a huge game changer because then we actually had a COA to give to brewers to say, you know, here is the quality, you know what you're getting, here's the receipts. Um, and so that was a, another way to kind of validate us and what we were trying to do. Yeah. Um, but it's a struggle even even today, you know, even 14 years later with all of the other craft malt houses. And um, it it is always a struggle to try to um, educate about why craft malt is important in our supply chain. I think it can probably be really exciting, but also kind of um, taken for granted a little bit of the, of the effort that all of us craft maltsters are right. really trying to put into this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I assume you've seen a, even in that time, you've seen a big, an improvement in that regard, I would hope among brewers in terms of their interest in in craft malt.
3: Sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, there really hasn't been a time where, you know, we've had to struggle to find customers, you know, usually as long as there's an initial interest, we can, you know, keep that relationship going with just good customer service and transparency and all that sort of thing. So for us, we're really just focused on trying to have these partnerships that are kind of multi-year partnerships, you know, um, we're not looking for like the quick sale, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally. We're, we're kind of looking for that that long term. I mean, early on, wheat malts and was a really great um beginning beginner malt and still is a really good beginner malt for breweries to work with a craft malt house because as you know, a lot of brewers use wheat. It's a really great wheat malt is a really great tool to have. And um Luckily, it grows very well in in the Northeast and can be, um, you know, a really nice local ingredient for brewers to use as a percentage in their beer. So they don't have to, you know, change an entire recipe to use local malt. Right. Um, so that's, that early on, and even to this day, we have a lot of breweries that, you know, I think over the years now, Wormtown and Exhibit A, just buying wheat malt from us have supported over between the two of them over 500 acres of wheat being grown in the Northeast, yeah. you know uh, just with a percentage of wheat malt in certain beers that they make. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. yeah, super cool. Yeah. What are, This is probably a huge topic, but what are your thoughts on the, on the next level of, of customer, if you will, the people drinking the beer and, you know, I don't know if you have any thoughts on how that's shifted um, and, you know, Connected, are are you, semi-related question, are you jealous of the hop community for, you know, hops being this sexy ingredient in beer that many consumers could name probably 10 or 15 hop varieties? Um, Yeah. Have you seen that shift at all in the last 10 years that a consumer, a craft beer consumer is a little bit more interested in locally grown grains, locally malted grains?
3: I think a little bit, you know, I think when it is presented in a way, from the brewery, where it is a sexy ingredient, um, then I think it is, you know, it does have a story to it. And um, it can be something that really, the beauty of it is once somebody does have that recognition, like, oh, this can of beer is primarily grain. And oh, that grain is some unique varietal or was grown on a dairy farm, right in the center of, New Hampshire, um, you know, that kind of thing I think does catch people. Um, I was a little bit jealous of hops, but seeing the sort of rise and fall of some of that, I I don't know if I would want to be necessarily caught in the middle of that right now,
0: (laughs) but yeah, yeah, it is,
3: it is a little, it is, gets a little frustrating sometimes when, especially when brewers talk about price, um, and it's like, oh, we can't spend a little extra on malt, but we can, we have an endless budget for some sexy hop.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And
3: it's kind of like, how does that work? Exactly. Yeah. You know? Um, so,
0: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, well,
3: let's see. What What about, um,
0: I know it's, you know, you talked about, it's in your bio a little bit where you're sourcing from, but talk a little bit about like where you're sourcing the, your grains from these days and how that's yeah. changed over the last 14 years.
3: Yeah, I mean, the big change is that, you know, now we're we're working with uh, more farms, you know, all of kind of the same farms that we started working with. Um, one farm that we wouldn't be here without is Oshner Farms in, um, they're right around Ithaca, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right in the Finger Lakes region. And they've been growing warthog wheat and Danko rye for us for 13 years, and they've really made us who we are because you know the the, the warthog wheat malt that we make and the Danko rye malt that we make comes from Ashner Farms primarily, and it's just always been excellent quality. Um, and Tor Ashner, he actually received the craft malt souls of malt award this past year at the craft malt conference and the reason why he received that award and you know he's such an important piece of this whole craft malt scene in the northeast is because he doesn't just supply us he supplies other craft malt houses as well he he knows that the success of the malt houses and the breweries is tied to his success as a farm. And it's not just, those aren't just words, like those are interactions every single day that happen between us and, and that farm. Um, we work with, I, I would say right now, and in, in for the last several years, we we primarily work with farms in New York. That tends to be where we're sourcing most of our winter barley from um, and I know that that's different than in Maine because mostly in Maine a lot of the grain is being grown in Aroostook county and the county can't really grow winter grains and barley plays a really important rotational role in the county for rotating with potatoes um, and so we actually recently this year, because of our growth last year and needing to expand the amount of acres that we're sourcing, we started working with more farms in the county now and um, getting spring barley from them. So this year, I think we'll probably have a couple hundred acres that will be coming from the county, Aroostook County. Um, and so far, we've really loved the barley. We've been working with Connect to Row, um, and then we contracted or we're in the process of contracting some genie this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we work with another farm in New York. We've been working together for about 10 years, Mosier Farms. Mm-hmm. And they're about a 1500 acre farm that grows vegetables. So a lot of berries, peas, beans, and then they have enough Land where they're doing, uh, which is what a lot of growers that we work with do, they do a corn, soy, grain rotation. Um, And one of the really interesting things that's happened over the last 10 years is most of the farms that we work with now that are conventional, because we do work with a lot of organic farms as well, like Oshner, but even the conventional farms we're working with are now almost entirely doing no-till farming. Hmm. which is really important. They're doing it because of carbon emissions. And they're trying to, every time that you till a field, you're emitting carbon. And so they're trying to sequester more carbon. Um, So like even just the practices on some of the farms like Mosier, like when we went to every year we go and we do a farm and field tour this year, we were able to take all of our staff with us where we spend two days and we drive probably about 800 miles and we go visit all the fields and all the farms that we work with. And it was amazing this year to see, you know, where we used to only be able to contract like 20 acres, now we're contracting 120 acres, you know, so like just the expansiveness of the fields and, and driving around and seeing so much more grain being grown. It was really, it was really encouraging and exciting to see that, um, and to see that a lot of these farms are doing things now like planting clover as a green manure and this is a conventional farm that's doing this um and yeah and then you know we're working with so i would say in new york those are the farms where we're contracting you know where we might be getting like 10 truckloads of barley from each one of those like five farms um and then we have farms in Vermont and New Hampshire and Massachusetts where they don't have that kind of land base where they can be growing 1,500 acres of anything. They might have, to them, a big size farm would be like 500 acres or 200 acres. And so a lot of those farms are actually dairy farms that haven't been able to make it through the ups and downs of the dairy industry. Um, it's you know really sad. And yet, you know, these farms are just trying to be resilient in the face of the reality of of dairy. Um, And so they're, they're finding that the grains are really good in rotation on their farms as well. And, you know, some of these farms were going into our fourth and fifth year now of working together, where they know that if they grow this crop, we can pretty much assure that we'll be able to buy that from them. And so that's just like a nice stable market for them. And then what it does for us is it really helps us to have fields and farms that are closer to some of the centers of population that, you know, I mean, anybody would love to have the most local possible. So it's kind of nice to have farms. Uh, you know, I mean, New York isn't really that far away. Um, but, you know, having like Schilling, a brewery in New Hampshire, being able to buy barley that was grown right in New Hampshire or, you know, that sort of thing. It is really nice to see those connections coming together and those breweries going to visit those farms and just seeing those relationships develop where, you know, Schilling now names beers after the farm, you know, and yeah. people and those beers sell out like immediately. Like the, when you were asking earlier about. The consumer, I think the consumer still is totally absorbed in supporting local farms. You know, um, yeah. it's one of those kind of golden, you know, things where everybody loves a farmer, just yeah. about, yeah, <laughs> unless totally. they're in your backyard. And then that's yeah. a different story, right?
0: <laughs>
3: but, yeah. <totally>. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah so it's it's been it's been really great i mean we we wouldn't be here without some of these larger size farms that can support our growth but then we also really love to work with these smaller farms that are just either transitioning to growing food grade grains or transitioning out of dairy or whatever it is like you know it's the bigger farms that we work with that their steadfastness and being able to supply us really helps us to then be able to work with some of these smaller farms in sure. the more like in the New England states. Yeah. Um, so it's cool. a it's a very diverse group. I mean, very diverse in the fact that, you know, most of them are older white men
2: that are doing it,
3: but diverse geographically and just in the size of the farm and the type of the farm, you know, I mean, it's always great to work with like a vegetable farm, you know, one of the um, farms we work with in about 60, 60 miles from here in the Hudson Valley of New York, they're a regenerative organic vegetable farm, and they're growing grains as a rotation on their farm. And we've been working with them for about five years now. Um, And, you know, it's just nice to see that, you know, a vegetable farm can also grow grains and, you know, have that as a good rotation. Sure. So, yeah.
0: cool. Um, two clarifying points for maybe those folks who aren't either in the Northeast or in the know. First, I'll, I'll handle the county as uh, is rustic <laughs> County. And uh, rustic <laughs> County is in Northern Maine. And for those people outside of New England or even outside of Maine, um, it, it is referred to in Maine and, and in this area as the county. Everyone just calls it <laughs> the county. Um, I think mostly because I believe it's the largest county east of the Mississippi, if I have that correct. It's a very large uh, acre, uh, amount of land. Yeah. Um, and secondly, just really quick um, for those people, maybe especially if there's people outside of, of the brewery uh, listening to this, um, spring barley versus winter barley or spring wheat versus winter wheat. Uh, just Would you mind briefly kind of giving the overview of the difference between those two?
3: Absolutely. So um, grain is uh, a grass and it can have a habit where you can plant it in the fall. It will grow just a slight amount. So it'll almost look like um, just a little wee big, you know, piece of might look like a weed to, to the naked eye. Um, so it'll grow up, maybe, you know, send some roots down, grow up some greener, some green leaf, maybe two, three inches out of the ground. And then it basically just goes dormant for the winter. And then early in the spring, it starts growing again. And by, um, the end of June, early July, it's being harvested. So there's winter barley, winter rye and winter wheat. And the beauty of those winter grains is that they allow the farm to keep a plant in the soil for the winter, which is a really important thing to prevent soil erosion and to prevent uh, fertilizers that are in the soil getting leached into our waterways Um, Because those will eventually and those do cause algae blooms in areas like the Lake, you know, like Lake Champlain has issues with algae blooms because of the runoff of fertilizers from fields in the spring. So, if you have something growing like a cover crop, like winter grains, those cover crops are actually the root system is holding on to not only the soil, but all of that nitrogen and fertilizer, preventing it from going into our waterways. So that's one of the reasons why we really like to support winter grains is because it does tend to work really well on farms that wanna practice these uh, rotational practices. The other thing that we find is with all of the climate issues going on nowadays, um, the spring grains, which get planted in usually April to mid-May, Sometimes, with the way that the weather has been over the last 20 years, you don't, you could have a very wet season where you can't even get into the field until May to prepare it to plant the seeds. And so, we found that over the years, the spring grains have been a little bit more risky to contract and have grown for us. And the protein contents on them year to year can really fluctuate quite a bit. Um, Whereas we find that the winter grains seem to have a lower risk. Um, They also seem to have a lower protein, which in general can be a really good thing for malting. And it just seems like year to year to year, those farms that grow the winter grains for us are giving us a very consistent product, whereas the spring grains can fluctuate a little bit more. And sometimes what will happen is those spring grains can't even get planted um so then that's a huge issue for us if we were counting on a farm to grow 100 acres of a spring grain and if they can't hit that window between april and mid may to plant it it's really not a good idea to plant it past then you know we we're out 100 acres and trying to you know find that somewhere else so um So we found that winter grains are a good fit for us, but we've we've also, we try to also purchase spring grains as well. As I mentioned, we're kind of working more up in Aroostook County, um, just seeing that, you know, with the amount of grain that we have to source now, we really do have to look toward Aroostook County as an area to source some of our grain from. Um, But yeah, and then just, I guess going back to the county, something really interesting. This is gonna get us geeking out a little bit, uh, Jason, on agriculture in Maine, but um some of the things that I find the most fascinating are, you know, how how the grains that we're trying to revive in the Northeast, how they compete with all of the other crops that a farmer could grow. Um what ends up happening is a lot of the grains that get grown are you know, being grown in Aroostook County as a rotation. And what I've heard that's been happening more and more lately is farms in Aroostook County are consolidating. And some of the companies that are buying these farms and this land are not gonna be rotating. Um, Usually potatoes every three years, you want to grow barley as a, as a rotational crop to stop certain disease cycles and let the fields rest. And what we've been hearing lately is, uh, at least this year alone, like a thousand acres that was going to be in barley, uh, the company that bought that land, they do not practice rotational practices. So they're just going to go hot and heavy and hard on potatoes, And they're going to fumigate that soil instead of rotating. So instead of doing the right thing, which is to give that soil a rest and grow barley, they're just going to fumigate. And that's literally injecting gas into the soil and killing every living thing in that soil. So that's what we're up. You know, it's like you talk to Sometimes you talk to a farmer and you could feel like the most hopeful You know, you've had the most hopeful conversation in the world. And then sometimes you talk to them and you hear stuff like this about consolidation and corporate farms, buying a lot of these family farms that are struggling right now. And you're just like so depressed after you get off the phone and you're wondering how what we're doing is ever going to make an impact against these huge forces of, you know, capitalism and consolidation of our, of our food system and of everything, you know? Um, so I don't know if you're aware of some of the, some of these things that are happening up in Aroostook County, but it is one of those places where they're losing more barley land than they're gaining right now.
0: Yeah, no, I am aware of some of that stuff. And, um, yeah, I hear you. And I do want to circle back uh, later. Sorry on, uh, to geek out on uh, that a little. About, no, that's okay. On on kind of keeping barley relevant for farmers in general. Um, yeah. But uh, I think we're going to take a quick break, not to break on a, a slightly depressing note, but we'll we'll liven it up when we come back, I promise. But uh, we're going to take a short <laughs> sure break, break for this message, and we'll be right back for more of the conversation with Andrew Stanley of Valley Mall.
1: First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F I R S D
2: tea.com/blog All About Beer is back and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website allaboutbeer.com where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com/allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts.
1: Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com.
0: All right. Well, welcome back. Um, yeah, let's let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, I wanted to talk about the Northeast Grain Shed Alliance, which you were a, a huge part of getting started and are still today involved with uh, the steering committee for that. And um, I'm very slightly involved. I think I'm still listed as an advisor, but I will admit that I, I do not pull my weight um, somewhat embarrassingly, but I think it's an amazing organization. Um, and one, maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of how you got involved with that, how that got started, what it's, what, you know, for those who don't, aren't aware of it, like what, what's, um you know, what's the mission of the group?
3: Yeah, well, I think what the mission of the group is to support uh, the grain economy in the Northeast and to not necessarily look at it like New York, you know, state by state, but to ch- try to look at ourselves as a region. And a lot of times um, funding does happen through the states. And so we can sometimes lose sight of the fact that, you know, state lines are kind of arbitrary when it comes to certain things. And so the Northeast Grain Shed Alliance covers all of the New England states, New York, and New Jersey. And basically, the idea is that we're kind of a region where we're trying to revive grain growing. And, support all of the different links in the supply chain so we have members that are on the side of research so people at cornell uvm that are doing all of the variety trials and all of the testing so that we can find varieties that are well adapted for the region and then you have your farmers that are part of the alliance and they're you know obviously playing a critical role in growing the crops. And then there's the processors, the malt houses and the mills and even like animal feed uh, makers. Um, and then there are the end users like the bakeries, the breweries, the distilleries. And then at a certain piece, we're also trying to do some awareness for the consumer. So one of the things that the Northeast Shed Alliance has done is come up with the square foot campaign, which basically there's a calculator where a bakery can input how much local flour it, they use to create a croissant. And they can say to the consumer, this croissant that you just enjoyed supported three square feet of farmland in the Northeast. So trying to bring that awareness to the consumer, um, but also trying to uh, help the all the different links in the supply chain to talk talk to each other and understand what's going on. So like if a new farmer comes into the Northeast Grain Shed Alliance and comes to our symposium in November that we're going to have, they're going to be able to learn about, okay, so they have land, they're thinking of growing warthog wheat. What are the different things that they need to know about the market? Who's there to buy it? How much are they paying? What is the quality? Where do I send the grain to get tested? You know, that all of those resources, we're trying to make those available so that, um, you know, somebody that is a farmer that wants to start growing grains or is thinking about it, they would have all those resources there for them. And they would be able to interact with and see that there are processors and even consumers that are interested in them growing this grain. So it's really just an organization that's trying to amplify the messaging around grains. but also really, there's um, I guess you would call it like, uh, you know we're doing value chain coordination, but we're kind of doing it at a very grassroots level. Sometimes value chain coordination can be happening with, like where universities are getting paid to do that sort of connecting of the the different aspects of the supply chain. But in this case, we're trying to sort of do it as small businesses and, and within our own supply chain. Cool.
0: And there, you mentioned the symposium in November, um, which is great. I, I, the last, they did that for the first time, what was that like, month or two before the pandemic hit us all, Uh, which, which was an awesome event. And so doing it again, down in that same location, is that what I understand?
3: Yeah, it's going to be in Canton at Trillium's um, location there. Um, I think they have space for 600 people there. So it's a good location, kind of central to everybody in the Northeast, you know. Um, And yeah, that's going to be in November, I believe, November 13th.
0: Yeah, yeah, I will definitely be there. And I'll throw in a pitch for it as well. I, 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 I really enjoyed the last one. And so yeah pretty easy to, I think it's on the Northeast Grain Shed, uh, website. So pretty easy to find details on that. Yeah. Um, and yet you kind of talked a little bit already several times about, you know, regenerative farming, sustainability, resilience of, of barley as a crop and, um, you know, climate, as you mentioned, climate challenges are continuing to be accelerating. Um, you know, Grain and malt, frankly, grain and malt are, are, are fairly large contributors to the overall carbon footprint of beer. Uh, input costs for farmers are going up, et cetera, et cetera. What, what, what do you, I mean, you, you guys are doing a bunch of stuff, but what in general do you think you know, Valley Malt can do and other maltsters and farmers can do to continue to um, you know, improve the sustainability and resilience of, of barley and wheat for the brewing industry? That's a big question.
3: Yeah. Well, I think maybe what some of the supply chain issues that happened in the last year might have taught us is that we should have a more robust um uh availability of you know grains. So um, you know, a lot of grains do come from Europe, a lot of malt come from Europe still. And I don't know if, you know, grains traveling across the world are necessarily, you know, I I, I guess I have a hard time with a question like this because I don't want to sound like I'm preaching, right? But I do think that you can cut the carbon footprint of um, your malt immediately by getting it from a local source, right? Yep. Um, and not only are you making a good choice in terms of the transportation, but then you're also buying from a local malt house that employs people and has bought from a local farm, you know, that sort of thing. Um, But, you know, I mean, we really care about other aspects of sustainability as well. So we're, for at least the last five years, we haven't used anything other than compostable, um, recyclable packaging. Um, in fact, one of the last things that we're still trying to work on is we still wrap our pallets in plastic wrap, but we found this new product called lock and pop that we're hoping we're going to start trialing soon, um, where we won't have to wrap our pallets anymore in plastic. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of exciting. Um, I mean, it would be great if there was more incentives, you know, and even some, some, you know. I don't know if it, where this would come from, but, you know, incentivizing brewers to just generally use less packaging, right? So the more often you can get your malt local and in a silo fill or in super sacks or in, you know, re, uh, containers that can be reused, um, you're, you're having less waste out there, you know, in the world. Um, and I think just valuing the grain itself, right? So like not... You know not wasting as much um we our new facility is in a city the city of holyoke where almost 100 percent of our electricity is coming from hydroelectric power that's made right here in the city um and we're just always trying to use you know the least amount of water as possible we we opt out of using chemicals in our cleaning and sanitizing process. You know, we've got more like pressure, you know, using heated pressure, water rather than using caustic chemicals. Um, you know, there's just a lot to all the little things that I think do add up. Um, but I think in a bigger way, the industry really does need to look at, yeah, where, you know, where the grain is coming from, how far it's being transported, um, sure. you know, and looking at more of um, the, the bigger scale of you know how these things are are getting to our door. Yeah. Um yeah. and the grain growing. I mean, you know, we we were starting to analyze the carbon footprint of our malt and the practices that are being used on the farm are certainly one of the larger impacts, right? But if you have close relationships with those farms and you're somebody that is a you know a paying customer of that farm. You know, you can start talking about things like how they are, um, you know, if they are still tilling, can they move to no-till practices? Um, Because all of those things, actually, if we could lower that carbon footprint from the grain being grown on the farm, you are absolutely right that that is one of the pieces that we could, you know, focus on. And then the other big one for us, other than packaging at the malt house, is the energy that we use to run our kiln. Mm-hmm. Um, right now that's still a natural gas boiler, but we're always looking for opportunities here in our city to have, you know, some sort of co-generation, um, or if there's any kind of heat, that's a waste product of another manufacturer here in the city to try to utilize that in our process. Sure. So, you know, I think there might be some technologies coming down the road eventually where, if we could eliminate some of our carbon footprint of how we dry our grain down, um, that would be that would be a huge thing,
0: for sure. And you're, you're correct. My wrong. Your your facility is both organic certified and re- regenerative agriculturally certified. If I got that that second. Yeah, it's
3: correct. a it's a certification called ROC regenerative organic certified, and so it's an additional step to. Um, And it starts at the farm. So we have to be buying ROC certified barley in order to make ROC certified malt. And so that actually goes into, like, we're talking about more um, farming practices that are actually um, enhancing the soil instead of depleting the soil. And then the certification goes even farther to audit the farm on their labor practices um, and that sort of thing too, so that it's kind of a holistic look at, it's almost like a bit of like a B certification. Cause I know you guys are B yeah. certified, right? Yeah. Where they're really kind of looking at like, what's the pay discrepancy between like the top and the bottom and, yeah. you know, just all of those different areas are around equity and sort of, um, so it's an interesting thing. It's a, it's a certification that Not a lot of companies have quite yet, Um, and Patagonia is one of the companies that has been, I would say, one of the major companies that's kind of trying to really push the ROC certification. Um, We just happen to have a farm that we work with, Breathe Deep Farm in New York, that has been ROC certified for the last four years. And so this year, we decided to go ahead and get the certification ourselves so that yeah. We could actually sell that
0: yeah, malt sure.
3: potentially as ROC certified. The interesting thing is that, um, you know, there's not any brewery out there necessarily right now that would be able to then sell that beer as ROC certified. Yeah. But anybody that yeah. wanted to, it would be a first.
0: So, yeah, interesting. <laughs> That's an interesting we just used yeah. recently, yeah. actually, through a uh, kind of mini collaboration we did with Patagonia, we did a ROC certified yeah. Kerns, ROC certified Kernza okay um, everything else was organic so that was kind of our first experience with it
3: yeah yeah so. it's one of those things I was actually very skeptical of it at first and then I kind of started just you know the more research I did the more I realized that it actually had a, little, a lot of really positive messages that it was trying it is trying to promote and it's definitely the early days for the ROC um but if you go to their website you'll see that there are some pretty well-known, Companies that are starting to have ROC products. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see.
0: Uh, right before the break, I kind of referenced something you alluded to a little bit with the story about the the farms up in the county, um, you know, who are moving away from barley. But like, just generally speaking, like you know, barley is a frankly a pretty specialty crop, right? Mostly used for beer and for distilling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a little bit for feed, but it's truly a specialty crop. And so, you know, what, and, and you, you deal with a lot of farmers, you know, part of the battle, right, is to keep barley relevant for that farmer as in profitable, something that's interesting to grow. Have you had many conversations with some of the farmers you work with? Is it, is it ever a battle to talk them into growing barley versus something else that might have a different margin for them?
3: Definitely. And we've been at it long enough where we've seen this cycle already happen twice. So have you ever heard the saying, corn is king? Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so generally, as we we when, as we talk about the county, it seems like such a great example for a lot of uh, what we're talking about. Generally, if a farm can grow corn, they're going to grow corn. Part of the reason why they're growing barley up in the county is because they don't have a season that really suits for corn yeah. same thing like a lot of the barley in north america that gets malted comes from uh western canada right. same thing corn at this point until they breed a variety that can grow up in that region with those particular conditions um they're they're still growing grains Um, This happened in Montana, where farms in Montana weren't really growing a lot of corn. And then once they found some good corn varieties to grow in Montana, you see the barley crop start going, acres going down and barley and corn going up. So um, what we've seen just on a local level with some of the farms we work with is that when prices are really good, when the commodity market is really good for corn, they're more apt to plant more corn acres and plant less barley acres. So basically we have to make our barley, wheat, rye, whatever it is that we're contracting, we have to make it as enticing as the price of corn at that right. time. Yeah. yeah, And we have to provide a solid market, right? So it's not just about how much we're going to pay for it. It's do we have the storage to take it when the farm needs us to take it? One of the reasons why we've been successful with a lot of bigger farms that are growing larger acreage for us is because we put in this million and a half or million pounds of storage so that they'll fill their bins with barley, but then that barley needs to be out of there by the end of October, beginning of November for the corn to go into it. So, you know, there's all these logistics that don't actually, you know, a lot of the negotiations we'd have with farms are less about money and more about logistics and making sure like the storage of the grain and, you know, all of these kinds of things can work out for them on their farm. Um, But for most of them, corn is, you know, one of the most profitable, although soy this year was incredibly profitable as well. I think um, a bushel of soy was going for like $30 a bushel this year. So. Um, So we've seen this swing and the corn prices in a lot of ways reflect oil prices because of ethanol. So it's all a very connected, you know, world of the economy of the bigger economies out there. And then here we are trying to operate in this little, you know, this little bubble, but the little bubble is really not um, immune to all of the other bigger. uh, Right currents that are flowing out there absolutely yeah
0: well uh, shifting gears here before we run out of time here i want to i want to ask you about real my most fun topic i want to talk to you about (laughs) the arm wrestling competition that you're a part of and i'll organize at cbc every year um just because i think it's it's such a cool thing i i i i'd heard such great things about this event uh for years and cbc is always just too too much to manage with various things and dinners to go to and people to meet that I had not been until this past year and I finally said I'm going no matter what this year and uh I, I don't know it's, it, I was not disappointed and it's it's pretty hard to describe like I don't know it's intense it's hilarious it's full empowering <laughs> and inclusive I don't know I, I I had so much fun at that event and so yeah. uh and I know it raised <laughs> a ton of money for women's reproductive rights as well so I don't know, give yeah. me a quick how did that start happening and tell tell listeners a little bit about
3: this thing. Okay, cool. Well, all right. So about, we'll back up like about 10 years ago, I went to our local world war II club, which is just like a, you know, it's what it sounds like. It's just a dive bar in Northampton. And there was a local women's farming arm wrestling group that was having an event. And I was like, this seems like a great night out. So I went to it and I was just, completely blown away i was like i can't even believe this exists like it was all these female farmers from western mass that were getting together having this arm wrestling event like you said it's kind of like it's part wwe um it's part yeah it's like you know because the wrestlers have personas they have you know entrance songs they have costumes and the wrestling so is real. Like
0: right? they're, You they're, have an
3: entourage, an entourage that, yeah. yeah, Um, that are pumping the crowd up as you're getting introduced. And then the wrestling is pretty real. I mean, we have like, you know, we, we abide by all the, the proper rules and everything. So anyway, I went to the first one and I was like, oh man, I think I could compete in this. You know, these wrestlers, these farmers, they seem pretty strong, but you know, I shovel like, you know, 8,000 pounds of barley every day. I think I got this. So I started engaging with our local Western mass women's arm wrestling group. And so I've been involved in that group now for 10 years and we put on events here out in Western mass twice a year. And we always, it's always a fundraiser. And, um, so Back in, I don't know, maybe 2017, I suggested to the local Pink Boots chapter, let's do a women, let's intersect women in beer and our Western Mass group together. So we had a showdown at Wormtown in Worcester and that was amazing. And then the Boston Pink Boots have done a few more wrestling events around Boston in the last few years. And then I think in 2020, 18 or 2019 um myself my cousin nicole who owns throwback brewery and Lindsay barr who used to work at new belgium who now is uh work is the owner of draft lab um the three of us decided that we wanted to organize one for the craft brewers conference um and so the first one we hosted i believe it was 2018 was in nashville at the five spot which is where we had it this last year um and then we did our next one the year after at Bierstadt in Denver. And, you know, basically it's just a way, as you know, the brew, craft brewing industry is, you know, there are more women and non-cis men that are, you know, involved in our industry now. But it was nice to have an event at the Craft Brewers Conference that was just about like women getting together empower, you know, feeling empowered and doing something really fun together. And so, um, so yeah, so we've been doing it every year. We, the three of us kind of feel like it's our contribution to the community of craft beer and trying to make it a little bit more inclusive, maybe a little bit more queer, you know? (laughs) Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's a really fun event. I, I, we raised $10,000 this past year for, Abortion Care of Tennessee, which was a really important thing for us to do. Um, We, you know, just it, you know, it's just fun to see people get excited, put together their personas, costumes, you know, and just experience the pure joy of, you know, this kind of performative theatrical arm wrestling. And uh, this year, it was really cool. We ended up hooking up with some professional arm wrestlers that were the referees, and they were amazing, right? They were just oh, yeah, they were
0: hilarious. Yeah, yeah. That was that was, yeah. that was quite something. So
3: yeah. yeah it's hard to day. it's hard to describe what it is. Yeah. I think you just have to go.
0: <laughs> yeah, such a great event and so amazing. We raised that yeah. kind of money. Uh, and I guess, you know, I know. Avoid getting into politics too much, but I think there was something extra special about it being in a state like Tennessee where there's yeah. some pretty shitty laws around yeah. women's reproductive rights and LGBTQ plus community and so on so that yeah. that felt nice to have that yeah that For outlet sure. i guess you could call it
3: yep so. yep yeah, yeah we did one last year out here our western mass group had an event in august um right after the Dobbs decision came down. And we also did it for Western mass abortion fund. And we had never had such, like, you could tell it was the kind of event where people were coming. Cause they just, they want to do something. They don't know what to do. And they're just like, yes, I'm going to come to this. I'm going to have a great time and I'm going to throw down a ton of money yeah. for this organization, you know? So. Yeah.
0: Well, I won't, I won't miss it again. So I'll be at
3: the next <laughs> one. for sure. Nice. So. We um, got to get somebody from Allagash who wants to wrestle.
0: Oh, I got, I got a couple ideas. I got Katie a B. Yeah. Katie B came right to mind. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I don't want to take up too much more of your day. I, you're, I know you're incredibly busy, but just to, just to close out, like what, what, uh, what, are, what do you, what's the future hold for you, the family, the malt house? What are you excited about?
3: Oh gosh. Well, I guess, um. I'm excited about my kids all being teenagers and, you know, kind of going and seeing them do their thing. Um, My son actually is working on a farm this summer and is really focused on wanting to be a farmer. And I find that to be just like really wonderful that, you know, there's kids out there that still want to get into that line of work, given all the challenges. Um, I, I just, I love all the different new varieties of barley that we're working with and just like learning, you know, all the attributes of these different types of barleys. Like right now, I'm very excited in the next week or two, we're getting back all of the analytics on how the grain did this year. And we've had a little bit of a wet harvest, not Not catastrophic, but a little bit wet. So I'm so interested to see like, how are some of these varieties going to do with these conditions. So um, I love the agronomic side of it. So I guess that's kind of, you know, I'm always like very excited about, you know, finding these new varieties in the Northeast that will you know, my, my goal, it's, it's, it's only a small goal, but I'd love to find like a Maris Otter of the Northeast, you know, something where just farmers love to grow it. Maltsters love to malt it. Brewers love to brew with it. And it's like this beloved, you know, variety that could put the Northeast, you know, on the map for having something special and unique and world-class, you know? So, um, but yeah, and I'm just looking forward to the summer a little bit. It's been kind of a slow summer getting started. I don't know if you felt that way, but for
0: sure, absolutely. Um,
3: yeah, yeah, looking forward to just like seeing some music and relaxing a little bit too. So, cool. Yeah.
0: Well, if if you ever if you make your way up to Maine, please be sure to drop by and say hello.
3: Absolutely, thank you for the invitation. Oh, I'll take you up on it.
0: And say hi to Mr. Mallet if you see him around. I, I know that you. Uh, he was on the east for a little bit. I don't know if he still is, but.
3: Yeah, well, he's he's coming back. Well, he'll actually. We might be. We might be up in Maine together in a few yeah, at I the heard, beginning I of heard,
0: August. So I heard a rumor about that. So yeah, yeah, maybe I'll see you both at the same time.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you to you, Jason, for, you know, thinking of uh, talking with a maltster and, you know, kind of having this discussion together. It's been really nice.
0: Awesome. Well, it was my pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, Andrea will be back on the next episode of the show with, as the host, um, having a conversation with a person of your choosing. Uh, And I think that'll air in about two weeks. So make sure to tune in for that. And finally, just visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media to support journalism in the beer space and check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. I'm Jason Perkins of Allegash Brewing. Thanks for listening to the Brewer to Maltster podcast.
1: First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Some of the brightest brewers across the country have discovered the First Tea Advantage. Hill Farmstead, Sweetwater Brewing Company, and Angry Chair are among the many who have used First Tea's unique and quality teas and botanicals to create top-rate beers. First Tea focuses on being direct, flexible, and fast. You can find out more about First Tea's collaboration with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot blog. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience, Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A valleyhops.com.